Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. This week, we're taking a break from our accounting toolkit to focus on current events, providing some perspective as you focus on quarterly reporting and start looking ahead to the end of the year. The Fed continues to hold the course on keeping interest rates high, investors are watching employment data hawkishly, and the stock market has shown continued volatility. There's a lot going on in the economy and in the world at large. CFOs in the United States, they just have to accept that this is the way it's going to be geopolitically for a while. It's going to be remarkably unsettled. The bottom line, uh, I think, for corporate should be that they need to have the same degree of agility and nimbleness as was needed to navigate the COVID recession, because the volatility is probably here to stay at least until next year once we start getting more clarity. Craig Stromberg and Zane Siddiqui from PwC Intelligence are back with updates on the economy and global outlook that you will not want to miss. As you're thinking about potentially quarterly reporting, including disclosures, reserves, impairments, and more, as well as looking ahead to the fourth quarter and end of the year for calendar year and companies, the overall economy is part of many of the assessments that you're thinking about. We have a lot to cover, so let's get started. Craig, Zane, welcome back to the podcast. I'm starting to think uh, it wouldn't be the end of a quarter without having you on. So thanks for joining us again. And every quarter, it seems like next quarter can't be any different. And yet again, it always is. So perhaps just to start, what's the latest um, in in terms of the macroeconomic environment and, and what's changing from your points of view? And maybe Craig, start with you and then Zane, of course, chime in. Thanks, Heather. And as always, wonderful to be back. We appreciate the opportunity. This is always the highlight of our quarter. So we've been eagerly counting down the days. And for the audience, he's even look serious, even though it may sound slightly sarcastic. So anyway, thanks for that. As as Heather knows, I don't do sarcasm, even though that also sounded sarcastic. (laughs) Um, No. So I, I completely agree with your point, Heather. In fact, it's interesting that you start the episode that way because that echoes conversations that Zane and I are having with clients of late, which is when we last talked to you last quarter, we thought things might get a little worse. And lo and behold, they have. Worse is probably not exactly the right word here. You know, the word we've been using on the podcast for more than a year now is disequilibrium, right? How COVID threw the world's macroeconomic and geopolitical systems, which were already a little shaky, off balance. And if you look back at the, at the past quarter, particularly geopolitically, you know, you've seen this to be true. You know, you've got at least three big games, if you will, that are going on now that are affecting the operating environment for almost every company and certainly challenging the ability of CFOs to figure out what to do in the future. So sort of game one is Ukraine and how it's impacting everything from commodities prices to geopolitical stability to stockpiles around the world of grain and oil and on and on. I think game two, which overlaps slightly with the first one, is what's happening between the U.S. and China and what is happening with U.S. companies as they're beginning to grapple with 
what should they be doing in terms of their future in China? And I think the sort of game three is sort of looking ahead to 2023 and starting to understand what dynamics will be at play there as we start, you know, almost here in October, the slow ride into what will certainly be, as it always is every year, right, a very sharp path between here and the end of the year. And so people are starting to think about this was a complicated year, what lies ahead? So I think those are sort of the three big areas for me that I'm seeing and that I'm hearing from clients that they're concerned about. Zane, I, of course, have follow-up, but anything you wanted to add before we go on? No, I would agree with uh, Craig. Look, um, this is a global economy which is still dealing with a crucible of challenges. Uh, When we last spoke with you, I remember us talking about the rising recession risks globally. We have seen some soft economic news since then, but unfortunately, I think the worst of the global slowdown is ahead of us, not behind us. Um, So we expect macro volatility to uh, stay and persist uh, well, you know, well through next year. So Zane, let me pick up on that and then we'll come back to geopolitical, which is where Craig ended um, later in the conversation, but global slowdown. So, you know, when, when you look ahead, what do you expect to see in the fourth quarter? And then maybe even if you're willing to look out that far as we look into next year. So we are now um, expecting a recession for the Eurozone and the UK in the coming months. It's just a question of how deep the recession may be. Uh, But even if the recession is short-lived, and my worry is that it may be short-lived, but the recovery may be very anemic. Um, We know that there is no easy way for Europe to wean off of Russian gas. And I know Craig will talk a bit about this. We are looking at a long-term structural adjustment. This will require changes to the European energy infrastructure, which will take time. Um, And then if you go across the other side of the globe and look at China, it's facing a very different set of risks. Uh, Many of us looked at China as a possible driver of global growth. um, But I think we need to temper some of that hope. China's economy is in a very fragile position. It's facing two key restraints. First is the trouble in the housing market, which is more structural in nature. It's not cyclical, so it's not uh, going to go away anytime soon. But the other is the zero COVID policy, which remains a persistent risk to supply chains as well as uh, domestic growth in China. We are hoping that after party Congress in mid-October, things should start to clarify a bit, but we are not expecting a quick fix in China. So those are the two big regions with which pull a lot of weight in the global economy. And both of those are in very fragile positions moving forward. Maybe starting then with Europe and the energy supply. And I think this weaves in with what uh, Craig mentioned when we think about what's going on in Ukraine. How do we see what's happening there impacting us? And then probably ask the same question about China. So the first, um, in terms of the spillover effects, that tend to be, so we won't see a lot of first order effects from what's happening in Europe. I, I think if you are a company which may be servicing the European market, you should expect that consumption is going to slow down sharply because a lot of the consumer wallet share is probably going to shift to um, 
items which tend to be acyclical, like gas, for example. Um, we know that as winter approaches, we are going to hit peak demand for gas. So the wallet share for consumers is going to shift towards that. I think on the production side, especially if we are exposed to supply chain with respect to Europe, uh, we should expect industrial cuts in Europe uh, to preserve the household heating ability during winter months. So it really depends on how we are exposed to the European economies. Um, on the consumer side, I think there is going to be a lot of uh, negative wealth and income effects, which are going to make sure that consumption goes down. And we are already seeing a very sharp slowdown in consumption. And then if you're exposed to on the supply side, that means that we should expect a lot more delays in lengthening of delivery times, as well as higher costs from supplies which are coming out of Europe. Zane, you also mentioned China, and I think this is sort of persistent refrain, how some of these policies are causing supply chain issues and how so there is a rollover impact then onto U.S. companies. And I know even myself, there's been some things I've wanted to purchase that you, you, know, you just can't, you can't get. Uh, and so just how do we see, do we see this continuing into 2023? Do we think it's going to change, you know, any, any predictions? So that's a good question. And this is a question that the clients are asking us all the time. Look, with respect to zero COVID policy, and that's been a big risk to supply chains, we do expect some uh, easing of, the, of that policy going into next year uh, by virtue of higher vaccination rates in China. Um, but having said that, my biggest worry is what's happening in the real estate sector in China. That's 25% of the Chinese economy. If you look at 90% of the households in China, their biggest financial asset is the real estate, is the home that they own. When they see the price of that home go down, their propensity to save goes up because now they're looking to repair their balance sheets, which means that consumption is going to go down. So if you are in China for China to service the domestic market, that's a potential risk that you need to look out for. But zero COVID as a whole, I think, is something where we expect some relief by the end of this year going into next year. But so far, it's still there and remains a big risk to supply chains. Are you seeing then companies diversifying their supply chains even more? I was reading... Something that was talking about, you know, U.S. production is ramping up. We're seeing that at least in some places. But are we seeing broader diversification than that or more people kind of wait and see with the hope that maybe things will go back to, quote, the way they used to be? So there is no question in my mind, and I think Craig should chime in on this, that when we talk with clients, they are facing a sort of a canonical trade-off, right? Should they stay? and invest in China, it's still a high, highly addressable market, or should they leave? I, I think a lot of that is not just because of zero COVID, or although zero COVID tends to be additive in that part of the equation. A lot of it is driven by the rising geopolitical tensions. I think they feel that that's only going to intensify moving forward, and that's going to drive a lot of future supply chain realignment. I mean, if you just look at the policy which have, has been coming out of Washington, D.C., out of the U.S., that is effectively incentivizing a realignment away from China. It's in, it de-incentivizing globalization. But I will let Craig chime in because I know he has a lot more comments on this. I think that's exactly right, Zane. I mean, look, the, the adjective that also comes to mind when I think about how companies look at China is is magnetic. 
right? The magnetism of the Chinese market is undeniable, right? The, the number of consumers that can simply bring immense amounts of revenue to bear for, for U.S. companies is very difficult for sometimes Americans to understand the scale, right? So it's such an immense opportunity. I think what's challenging this is a couple of different things. One of them is the thing that Zane mentioned already, which is that if you look around the world at global capitals and the way they conduct governance, one of the least predictable ones increasingly is Washington, where what is happening because of Ukraine and in part because of U.S.-China tension and Washington's concern about China rising as a strategic competitor is that many things that used to be viewed from a regulator and a government perspective just through the lens of commerce or trade, they're now being looked at through the lens of national security. And national security is where the government is very comfortable operating, but it tends to force very stark decision-making. And what this means is that Many companies and many sectors and industries that are used to being able to have a dialogue with regulators and with Washington about how to conduct trade with China, sometimes of late, that dialogue has been very short, and the answer has been no. You know, no matter the degree of lobbying, no matter the degree of influence that can be brought to bear, if in the government's eyes, trade in certain sectors, especially technology, but increasingly things like biotechnology and biomedical, and even increasingly things like pharmaceuticals, those things are entering the sphere of national security. And when that happens, it means the government, the U.S. government, is going to be more stark about limiting the opportunities for companies. And that is going to potentially erode tens of billions of dollars of revenue for certain sectors. Now, the U.S. government isn't going to do that easily. They're not going to have a knee-jerk reaction. But what Ukraine did for policymakers in Washington, D.C., is it, it rejuvenated the national security lens in a way that it hasn't been in decades, right? Not really since the end of the Cold War. And no matter where you are, what agency you're dealing with, national security is now going to be a part of the conversation. I think the other thing that's going on with China is that a lot of U.S. companies are now facing a situation where the cost of compliance with Chinese regulations, particularly data and cyber regulations, is now equating to or is catching up to revenue. And so the cost of compliance in the market is dramatically increasing. And if you look back over the last year, when you look at what U.S. companies are saying about the Chinese market, they're not saying they're going to leave but they are voicing increasing concern and pessimism about their ability to operate there in the long run because of tension and regulation. So the question that emerges then is, if not China, where? This is one of the key business questions that CFOs and others are going to have to be asking for the next two or three years. The problem is there isn't a real good answer to this. And part of this is because of the scale, right? The scale of talent in China, the scale of manufacturing, the scale of logistics. One of the ways in which China has excelled is its ability to logistically get products in and out, 
right, through the massive investments they've made in infrastructure. This is part of the reason for the zero COVID policy, is that China can simply not afford to have its port workers and its cargo workers go down as they did in the early days of COVID with mass sicknesses, slowing down the processes and the gears of the supply chain. They just can't allow that to happen. If they do, not only do they use revenue, but they lose the surety and confidence of exporters and importers. And what's happening is, as companies look elsewhere, they're trying to find alternatives, and they're not easy to find. If you're talking about just scale, the only thing that exists on a similar scale to China is India. And India is gathering more foreign investment, and there are more companies that are certainly looking at it. But in terms of its infrastructure, and it's in a completely different place than China is. And so if you're talking about getting product made there and getting it out easily, you're not going to be able to do that as well as you can in China. They're beginning to look other places in Southeast Asia in particular as alternatives, so they're relatively closer, and you can do labor arbitrage. But the problem there is that the pools of talent are smaller, and much of that talent is already spoken for, in part because other Asian economic powers, particularly Japan and Korea, have been in those markets for years, and they've secured the top technical talent you know, and the top logistical talent, the top engineering talent. And it's going to be very difficult to get them away. And so there is a conversation that is beginning to happen. And I really want to emphasize the word beginning. Because what Zane and I are hearing from clients is not a determination to leave the Chinese market. But it is a question they are beginning to have about their longevity. And they are beginning to internally discuss this. I don't think this is quite a board-level issue. In 2023 and 2024, that may not be the case. But then they're going to get back to where we are at in this conversation, which is, okay, if not China, where? And the alternatives aren't good. One of the things that China has going for itself here is that even though there's a high regulatory burden, it's a known regulatory burden, right? You know what it is. You know what you have to do. You've already set up governance for it. And so you may end up finding companies, U.S. companies that may want to leave, but their knowledge of the Chinese market and their concern about the unknowns of moving operations elsewhere may keep them in China longer than they may want. Heather, on the stickiness of China that Craig talked about, I had a really interesting conversation with one of the auto clients and they mentioned in no uncertain terms that the plants and the factories that they have in China are more advanced than what they have in the U.S. And when they have tried to pursue resiliency elsewhere, they have had a lot of issues sourcing the right kind of labor, right kind of talent. And they are running into a lot of productivity issues. So it goes back to the point that Craig mentioned that companies, when they ship supply chains, they're going to be faced with a lot of adjustment costs and how those adjustment costs fit into their longer term resiliency strategy, I think is going to be a big question moving forward. So Zane, that's actually a perfect lead in to my next question, because as we were talking about supply chains, and I sort of alluded to this in my prior question, you know, we do see where um, 
the U.S. government is encouraging onshoring, you know, most recently through the Inflation Reduction Act and I know other, you know, other uh, policy decisions. And so how, what type of impact are we seeing from that um, at this point or too soon to tell? It's too premature. I think the impact so far has been very modest. Again, most of the spend-out rates based on many of these policies which have been passed are going to be very lagged, so we won't start seeing it until a few years. Um, CHIPS Act, I think, is an important one which was passed recently. Uh, it has the potential to partially localize part of the semi-supply chain, although I think full localization is just not viable because semis tend to be in a sector which tends to have very high barriers to entry. Cost tends to be very prohibitive. So I do think we will continue to rely on uh, semis, um, from, uh, foreign supplies of semis or parts, critical parts for semis over the long term. Uh, but then, um, but then it, it is something which will continue to induce uh, at least partial localization of that supply chain. Uh, but I think it's we need to wait and see and, and see uh, you know how much of the reshoring happens back to the U- U.S. as well as how much of that nearshoring happens to Mexico. I think there's clearly a lot of interest interest there amongst uh, countries, uh, amongst companies. I will say one thing though. I think. We haven't quite thought through in terms of what some of the unintended consequences of many of these policies are going to be. Inflation Reduction Act is a very good example of this. It incentivizes green investment, but we haven't thought through in terms of where the supply is going to come from. So green investment is one thing which would require a lot of metals up front, but structurally we have underinvested in metals uh, supply chain, and any future supply of metal tends to be very inelastic because it's associated with a fairly long capex cycle. So what I see in the near term is if those green commitments are indeed met, you will see a lot of upfront demand for metals, but the supply is not there, and that's going to ensure that we are in this metals constrained environment moving forward, which will push up the prices of metals and would uh, induce more commodity price inflation in the near term. I think the other thing to think about there is that if American companies are thinking about reshoring, part of what they've got to think about is if I make the decision, as Zane said, to leave the massive investment that I've done, right, which over years could equal billions of dollars in manufacturing in China and state-of-the-art facilities and attempt to replicate or improve upon that in the United States, Am I going to get the talent in a talent-constrained environment to make sure that that investment is going to pay off? And as CFOs have watched all of the talent headlines over the last 18 months, I would suspect this is in the back of their minds because it's not always a case of if you build it, they will come. You know, we're we're in a very strange labor market in the United States. And if you're going to make the investment of a new plant or a new factory, especially a high-tech or a semi-automated one, and you're going to need high-skilled workers to do that, you need to be sure that the talent's going to be there for you to make the investment worthwhile. And that may be an open question for some companies. So, Craig, you're almost saying that these new policies, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, there also perhaps needs to be some time simultaneous thinking about 
the immigration policies of the U.S. in order to supply a greater workforce? I mean, that would be one way to do it, correct? It would be. And Zane would know the figure better than I do. But I think there's at least, you know, if you look at back at the last couple of years, there's at least a million, probably a million plus immigrants that are sort of missing from the economy, right? And this sort of gets to the overall patchwork approach with which competitiveness is being looked at from Washington, right? They're getting good individual pieces right, right? Like the CHIPS Act. But it's just a piece. There needs to be a much larger strategy, much more funding, and it needs to go beyond the term of whoever happens to be in office. You know, this is where the Chinese have an advantage because they can make plans that are going to be 20 and 30 years long. And we are in the 22nd, 20th, 21st, 18th year of many 30-year plans. And you've seen the result of those plans already in terms of modernization of technology in China. The U.S. system just doesn't work like that. But we are increasingly competing to be the world's number one economy with a country that can do that and has ample talent and supply of workers that has a government that is willing to throw trillions of dollars and can, right, without asking anybody and without really having to have elections to do that. And so this is where, not to even complicate this more, but this is where one of the things that we've talked about in the past, which is the polarization that currently exists in the U.S., the politicalization, it makes all of these long-term investments harder. And when you start to think about the second and third order thing that you're going to need to be competitive in the next 10 and 20 years, politicalization and polarization makes all of that harder because the good governments that we've seen of late could be challenged by a more polarized environment. All right. Well, sticking then with U.S. government and government policy, one of the things that we've seen and seen, I think you were talking to us about this on our second quarter webcast, was the actions from the Fed and the continual tightening of monetary policy, continuing rising rates. And I was trying to think back to your predictions, and I think they maybe are even raising rates faster than what you had predicted back in June. And I remember in June thinking you seemed so precipitous with those um, those predictions. So what are you thinking about, um, you know, what we're seeing from the Fed? And you mentioned recession earlier. How do all these pieces fit together? So I think the Fed is still feeling their way to how far they may have to raise rates, partly because they haven't, inflation has been more sticky than anticipated. They want to be restrictive. They know they want to slow down the aggregate demand. So the underlying inflationary pressures ebb. Uh, in hockey terms, the Fed is trying to skate to the puck, but what they don't want is to cause a recession. Uh, but I think that will require quite a bit of luck on their part. Uh, if you look at the August CPI report, the only positive feature of that report was lower gasoline prices. Core inflation actually went up. Um, so this means that the Fed will continue to push. I know there has been a lot, a lot of discussion and a lot of concerns in the market. They have capitulated to the markets before. Uh, I think now they won't. And I think we need to think this from a central banker's perspective. Re causing a recession uh, seldom ruins a central bank banker's reputation. They ha recessions happen all the time. Uh, in fact, we have lionized Paul Volcker for inducing a recession to bring down inflation. 
On the other hand, runaway inflation is something which could lead a darker legacy and no central banker, I think, wants to be a case study in economic textbooks on how to fail. So I think the skew is that the rates will continue to press higher. We think the Fed funds rate now is going to be closer to 4.5 to 5% by the middle of next year, unless we see a recession, which could short circuit some of this tightening cycle. Um, but generally, I think this is something which will leave them with a very narrow path for a soft landing. There's a high chance that they overcorrect and over tighten policy and, of course, cause a recession. But I think right now they have a univariate focus and that focus is bringing inflation down, even if it means that they would risk a hard landing. Why have we seen such persistent inflation? I'm sure there's many factors, but any that you would in particular highlight? So this is a really interesting question, right? And um, it goes back to the point that the last two years have been so different. So why not this year as well? Um, some of the inflation is driven by supply constraints. Central banks can't really solve that. But then there is some inflation which is not very easy to solve. Uh, we are now seeing inflation in categories that tend to be more inertial, uh, these are categories which are more persistent. Uh, rental inflation is actually a very good example of this. In many ways, that's uh, been made worse by tighter monetary policy because when mortgage rates go up, affordability comes down and it pushes a lot of people who may want to buy a house into the rental market, driving up rents. Uh, and of course, everyone needs a shelter. The second reason I think may be uh, that monetary policy works for the lag. And I know that's the favorite phrase and a sentence that economists like to say. But if you take data for the past 35 years and come up with averages, it has probably taken something like two to three quarters for higher rates to start affecting the real side of the economy. And then another two to three quarters after that for that slowdown in the economy to start uh, affecting inflation on the consumer side. So quite a long period of time before higher inflation, uh, before higher rates start making any contact in a more significant manner with the broader economy. Uh, but the third, and I think this is the more fascinating point, which is not being acknowledged enough, I think, is this, is this cycle is different, you know. It is within a realm of possibility that consumers are probably not as sensitive to the Fed tightening cycles as they have been in the past cycles. You have so many households who have turned out so much debt at really low interest rates over the last two years that they may be slightly less immune to higher rates. And housing is a very good example of this. The low rates of the last two years allowed a lot of consumers to refinance into low 30-year mortgage rates, which means their largest liability, this is their largest cost, is now effectively immune to higher interest rates. They're not seeing debt servicing costs go up in a way that they have in the past cycles. So maybe in that context, then I want to get to later in the conversation, what you're recommending people to do. But I, another factor that I think we should be talking about here is what we're seeing from the dollar perspective. Now, of course, we've seen all summer, and maybe starting in the spring, where the dollar and the euro were basically at parity. But now we're also seeing obviously a huge amount of movement with the pound. And I've been reading lots of alarming headlines about what has been going on in the UK. So how does the, the 
increasing strength of the dollar impact, you know, as companies are thinking about all of these different factors, how should they be thinking about the dollar in that context? So we have to go back to the 80s to find an episode, I think, when the dollar was higher than it is today. Um, currency volatility has been very high over the past few exp- past few weeks as well, and that's mainly due to the policy divergence that we are seeing globally. And as we know, as volatility climbs, of course, so do the prices of options. Uh, this makes hedging very costly, very difficult. And then on top of this, we have rising yields um, uh, and yield differentials across countries, uh, which are not making it any easy. Uh, we have seen those impact the balance sheet and cash flow hedges that some companies have used to uh, guard themselves from currency volatility. Our view generally is that the dollar strength uh, and volatility is here to stay. And I will mention two reasons for this. There are more, but the two main ones are, the first is that the aggressive Fed tightening cycle. Um, the inflation, again, is very sticky. The Fed is taking an even ha- more hawkish approach than they have in the last few months. And that means you have a lot of capital, which is in search of higher yields, which is coming to the U.S. and going into dollar-based assets. The other is rising vulnerabilities globally. Um, and what's interesting here is that we are not very optimistic about the U.S. outlook, but we are really not optimistic about what's happening in Europe and in China. So that's sending a lot of capital, which is in search of safe haven into dollar-based assets as well. Um, And then I think the other fascinating point this time around is that the drivers for foreign exchange tends to be very different uh, depending on the currency pairs that you're talking about. Dollar-yen, very sensitive to the front end of the yield curve, the policy divergence between the Fed and the Bank of Japan will remain very constructive for the dollar. Fed is tightening policy. BOJ is the only global central bank now that's still committed to a negative interest rate policy. So this divergence is something which will continue to grow. And we don't see a lot of resistance to yen depreciating even further. Uh, the euro dollar, a dollar or the pound dollar pair pairs, have, as you discussed, um, are driven by slightly different factors. Both the Fed and the ECB, as well as the uh, Bank of England, are moving in the same direction. Uh, but both of these pairs have not really shown too much sensitivity to ECB or Bank of England rate hikes. Um, right now, what's happening is the market is pricing in a much more aggressive uh, tightening path for both the ECB and the BOE, but that hasn't really moved the euro or the pound uh, too much. They're mainly driven by energy crisis uh, in Europe and the rapidly deteriorating growth outlook in Europe. And this is something which is going to stay. So dollar strength is something which is going to be with us, I think, at least until next year. And once things start stabilizing, hopefully in Europe and in China and in Japan, then we may start seeing movement in the other other direction. So Zane, you know, on the surface, it sounds like dollar strength is a good thing. But in listening to you, it's definitely does not sound like that's necessarily the case. So how how do companies think about this? And obviously, I know it depends where their operations are and otherwise, but are there some sort of general things that you see CFOs thinking about when they're looking at what's going on with the dollar? So I think it really depends, as you mentioned, Heather, where your operations are and how you're exposed to 
the global economy. I think generally dollar is going to impact you in some way uh, if you are in a highly tradable sector. If you're importing, your import bill are, uh, is going to go down. So it's beneficial for you to have a stronger dollar globally. Uh, now, if you are exporting to the foreign markets, uh, a stronger dollar is going to be a drag on your exports. And that's what we have seen based on some of the macro trade level data where trade deficit has actually gone up uh, in the U.S. And that's partly weighing down the GDP growth. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is anytime that you're exposed to foreign exchange, you have some hedges in place. And hedging costs is going up and it will and it's not going up because of a stronger dollar it's going up because of the policy divergence and higher volatility that we are seeing in the global space so making sure that you are hedged correctly and the timing of that hedge makes sense i think becomes really important so i think the next few months are going to be very tumult uh, very tumultuous I think we may start seeing some clarity after that. And for me, the key thing, again, remains what happens with the inflation in the U.S. If inflation is coming down and we are seeing signs that the Fed is successful in guiding inflation back towards its target, again, guiding back towards its target doesn't mean that inflation comes back down to 2% instantaneously. It means that we are seeing some good news on the inflation front. Then to me, that would tell me that foreign exchange volatility is going to go down as well. But for me, looking at inflation data remains key as well as how some of the news is developing abroad. I mean, if we start seeing positive signs from Russia, Ukraine, and if we are seeing a tentative agreement that will reduce some of the risks, tail risks that Europe is facing um, in the near term. So that's actually perfect segue to what I was next going to ask uh, Craig, which is that we touched on the war in Ukraine at the beginning. And um, I personally think uh, Zane's description um, could be a, a bit opt optimistic, but definitely curious, uh, Craig, what you think and what you think the impact of this ongoing war is on Europe more broadly, as well as the, the broader global geopolitics. So for any listeners who are still paying attention at this point, what Heather really said is Craig is here to destroy everybody's optimism. <laughs> not quite, not quite, but maybe. <laughs> a rule I seem to be cast into all the time. Um, that's fine. So, look, I first of all, Ukraine just continues to captivate corporate officers' attention for a whole bunch of reasons. And we're now more than 200 days into combat, far longer than, than many thought this would go on. I don't think that anybody, and I count myself in this, saw that by the fall that Ukraine would have been able to make these kinds of gains and Russia would have been reeling back. So I think the key question is, how does all of this end? And we may have seen today the start of one of the ways it could end. So one of the ways it could end is that effectively what Russia could do is take the breakaway regions that it ostensibly went in to secure and has still secured mostly, declare victory and retreat from the field. And effectively say these regions are part of Russia and we're done. And this is all we ever intended to do. Um, 
in that case, you know, Ukraine would be faced with the decision, do we keep going or not? I think their inclination would be to try and keep going. And I think what allies would probably tell them to do is don't go any further. If that's the case, the benefit is that combat stops. You might get some return to normalcy in some things. But the U.S. in particular is going to continue to isolate Russia from the global economy. I don't think that changes in any circumstance or any scenario. I think the other ways that this could end is that Russia could become even more aggressive, right? And really try and effectively destroy the infrastructure that remains in Western Ukraine. And that could include its, its people. If, if that happens or something more dire happens, you've already seen more internally displaced people from the conflict than Europe has seen since World War II. If that happens, Europe, on top of the potential recession and economic downturn that Zane talked about, is going to have to deal with an emptying of many tens of millions of Ukrainians, more than there have been already, into Europe. You know, in winter, have to find them housing, shelter, occupation. Right. So it would place an even bigger burden on not just the Poles and the Romanians and the Bulgarians, but countries all over Europe, you know, just at the wrong time economically. Either way, what is unlikely to happen is that there will be no reverberations for this going into next year. Even if there's a negotiated settlement, which is unlikely, even if Russia declares victory and says, we're done and this is what we wanted all along, this geopolitical pillar is not going to stop shaking. And as it's shaking, it's causing tectonic shockwaves out that are rippling across supply chains. It's rippling across currency markets, it's rippling across commodity markets. All of that is going to continue. And what effectively you're going to have on the far side of that is a Russia that is agitated, feels cornered, has the capability to reach out and do things through cyber economic espionage against companies that might become even more unpredictable. And one of the questions that I'm getting asked a lot by clients is, is it feasible that there could be a change of leadership, you know, in Moscow? And I, I think it's possible. I think it's unlikely. But even if there was, what I don't think anybody should be assuming is that a new leader would be more moderate. There's every chance, if not a better than even chance, that a new leader would be even more aggressive creating more tension and causing more ripples to the global economy. So as we head into winter, what's happening from the East is that tens of thousands of new conscripts are being thrown unequipped, you know, unprepared into the conflict. I mean, and I honestly feel for them, you know, these guys are being pulled off of streets. They don't even have sleeping bags. They're not trained. They're not equipped. They're going into a conflict, many of them with family members on the other side. And from the West, you're coming in with forces that are concerned about the freezing of the ground, right? It's one thing to try and move Russian tanks over Ukrainian marshes in the summer. It becomes a lot easier in the winter. And so all of this may change, but it probably isn't going to end cleanly or clearly. And that means that companies that are assuming an end to the chaos that they have been dealing with that has reverberated out from Ukraine, they probably need to start thinking about if they're not already something they're going to have to be dealing with in 2023. So, Craig, not to spend 
too much time specifically on this, but one question for you is that there's recently been headlines about the difficulty of the U.S. and some of the other Western, um, you know, European countries supplying Ukraine because there's only so much that was stockpiled. And so that um, the U.S. is placing some long-term orders for arms and otherwise. So if I'm a CFO, am I reading into that, that the U.S. government thinks that this conflict is going to be ongoing for some time? Or is that just prudent planning as we look at sort of the broad um you know, geopolitical status of the world? So that's a really good question. And I think the U.S. government is very concerned that this is going to go on for some time. One of the announcements in the last couple of weeks that I think that went generally unnoticed by most of the press was that the U.S. Army is reorganizing the way that it will be doing training for Ukrainian personnel, mostly in Germany. You know, right now, many allied forces from NATO are setting up what were supposed to be temporary training facilities all over Europe for Ukrainian forces, bringing them out of Ukraine, training them for a couple of weeks, either in general or on specific systems, and then sending them back. What the U.S. Army is thinking about doing, and probably will do within the next couple of weeks, is set up a much more semi-permanent location. And what this means is they are there to keep Ukrainian military personnel as up-to-date as possible. And, you know, for, for those listeners who, you know, who were never in the military, right, there's, there's what's getting most of the attention in the press, which is the weapon systems. But a lot of this just come down to basic war fighting. It comes down to how do you operate in a battlefield? How do you do medical on a battlefield? How do you do logistics? Right? How do you do camouflage? How do you do a proper retreat? You know, how do you work in concert with other units? These are sort of basic infantry level skills that the Ukrainians were already pretty good at. But what's happening now is they're learning quickly. They're going outside Ukraine and being paired with allied instructors, sharing their learning. And then they're coming up with new training programs and sending troops back to Ukraine even more prepared. And it's always easier to motivate troops that are defending their homes than those who are attacking homes. And you, you see this in conflicts, you know, throughout history. The, the advantage emotionally is always with the defender. It doesn't mean they're going to win, but that's the way it tends to be. So I don't think that anybody should expect this to end anytime soon. And I think the U.S. government, from a policy, from logistics, from a military, from an intelligence point of view, are in this for the long haul. All right. And then just related question on this point that we touched on earlier, and that I don't think can be understated is the risk to the gas supplies in Europe and what's going on with the pipelines. And, you know, that we've seen potentially that you're going to have manufacturing shut down in parts of Germany and the like. How does that fit into this broader conversation? I mean, thinking about you, the impact on U.S. companies, of course, but also just more broadly, what the broader impact of some of that is going to be. So I'll start the answer and then Zane could come in and, and correct me because a lot of this, quite frankly, is going to come down to what the countries themselves are going to be willing to do from a monetary and economic point of view. Again, at a time when they are going to be dealing with multiple economic crises already. So you're exactly right. The gas supply is really what matters. And I don't remember which podcast it was on, 
it may have been the previous one, it may have been the one before that, when we talked about how Ukraine was going to be a much more difficult conversation in the fall. And here we are in the fall, the temperatures are, are falling in Europe, people are huddled together, and governments are genuinely concerned about being able to keep them heated. I mean, there's a certain amount of things that you sort of expect from your government. And one of them is that they're going to be able to help you keep the lights on and the gas on. And it, it is a genuine problem without a very easy solution. You know, for those of us, myself included, that were able to take time off away this summer, you know, we were not like energy ministers in most of Eastern and Central Europe. Those people did not get a day off. They traveled all over the world trying to secure energy supplies. And in some cases, they were marginally successful, but nothing along the lines of what has already been done. And I, I don't want to go into speculation about what may or may not have happened to the undersea pipelines, but this is absolutely a very dangerous new wrinkle to this. Because if that was done the way that it could have been done, it adds an unexpected and spontaneously dangerous situation on top of what is already a dangerous situation. But I think a lot of this really depends on economically, what are these countries going to be able to do to keep their manufacturing and corporate bases going in the coming quarters? Zane, anything you want to add to that? I, I think it's not an easy problem to solve, especially in the short term. Um, at this point, if you look at most of the Russian gas, which is coming to Europe, it's below 50-60% capacity. Um, I, I think the tail risk that we get into a period where we see a sustained and full shutoff of Russian gas is not off the table. That's still there. Uh, it, 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 so this is something which will continue to weigh significantly on growth throughout Europe. Um, and there is no easy fix in the near term. Uh, you, we saw that recently um, the new prime minister in UK, Liz Truss, came in and she announced a very robust fiscal package. Well, uh, that's something which is going to be very growth positive, but it's also something which is going to contribute to inflationary pressures that UK is already seeing. Uh Inflation on a year-over-year -year basis in UK is in double, double digits. It's, it will probably remain in double digits at least until the middle of next year, uh, which means that Bank of England would have to tighten even more than what they had to prior to the fiscal package was passed, uh, which uh, risks an even more severe recession in the UK. So there is no easy near-term cyclical solution except for a more structural solution. And I think that, as I mentioned before, requires uh, adjustments to the energy mix of Europe. All right. Well, I, I we could definitely continue this conversation uh, probably for at least a few more hours. But in the interest of wrapping things up, you know, I think as I've been listening throughout, I keep thinking, so what what should we do? What should I do if I'm a CFO? So I'll ask you each that question of what advice are you giving companies now to deal with all these moving forces? And obviously, we've hit a lot of different things. So you can kind of pick the ones you would prioritize and um, and share some advice. So maybe Craig, start with you. So I, I have two, one of which I, I hope will be very practical. The other one 
you know, will be more challenging. I think the more challenging one is that CFOs in the United States, they just have to accept that this is the way it's going to be geopolitically for a while. It's going to be remarkably unsettled, even if there's an end to the Ukrainian conflict, that geopolitical uncertainty is going to be greatly elevated for some time, which is uncomfortable and a distraction and unwelcome. But the sooner they can get their heads around the fact that this is just the way it's going to be for a whole variety of reasons, not just Ukraine, the better the position they might be in to make some decisions. And I think the other one would be to do what I have heard an increasing amount of companies across sectors do, which I have been greatly heartened by, which is they're actually sitting down right now to think about how do we war game this out? So they're having tabletop exercises at the C-suite and the board level to think about if things got worse or more complicated, how do we operate? Right? If things get easier, you don't need to war game that. Right? You, you, you've got systems in place that are built to operate when everything works. But when parts of the global economy and geopolitical system and supply chain continue to break, how do you operate there? And just relying on what you did the last quarter and even the last fiscal year probably isn't enough. So I think what many companies, I think, are increasingly doing is what I would urge even more to do, which is take some concerted time, think about how this is going to play out, really challenge your corporate officers to think about high-impact, low-probability scenarios, and see how the company does. And if the company doesn't do well, well, that gives you your goals of what you need to build around. But taking the time to do that as much as they can and actually acting on the results, I think is one of the best things that any company could be doing right now. All right. I think, uh, Craig, you've been giving that same advice since I started talking to you at the beginning of the pandemic. So hopefully if companies are listening, they are already already doing that. But if not, uh, it definitely seems like the time time to start. Zane, what, what's your perspective? I think from a macro perspective, uh, the biggest change uh, is that companies who have known rates closer to zero are now facing an environment where rates are rising very quickly globally. Uh, they need to get used to this gravity again uh, of rates being higher. Uh, that's an adjustment that will truly be different. And then overlaid on top of these issues is the fact uh, that you have geopolitical risk that Craig laid out as well as slowing growth. Um, economic relationships are still being recalibrated. We still haven't hit that new normal. In the U.S., there is a narrow path uh, to achieving a soft landing, but the pace of growth is something which is going to continue to uh, continue to slow. Uh, Fed will continue to focus on inflation, and the likelihood of a recession next year is basically a flip of coin uh, for us right now. Um, what I will say is the bottom line, uh, I think, for corporates should be that they need to uh, they need to have the same degree of agility and nimbleness as was needed to navigate the COVID recession. And we need to keep this in mind as we move forward because the volatility is probably here to stay at least until next year once we start getting more clarity. 
All right. Well, Zane, Craig, as always, uh, really appreciate all the insights. Maybe next quarter when I have you back, you'll have slightly more uplifting news. Uh, But in the meantime, definitely a lot of food for thought. So thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us back. Thank you. That does it for today. Join me back here Thursday for a timely deals update and more new episodes next week. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.